Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 77, if you would. And I think that's today's daily Bible reading, or it's the last couple days. I don't have my schedule in front of me, but we are continuing to read through the Bible together. Um, and so Psalm 77 should be fresh on your mind, or maybe you'll be reading it later today. But um, two things to keep in mind as you read through the book of Psalms. And that is that, and we, we talked about this uh, last month, that in Psalm 1 and 2, we're given the clues or the blueprint on how we should read the Psalms. And that is we need to consider two questions. Two questions. The first being, what do I need to trust about God? And the second question is, what do I need to obey? So the first question is, what can I learn about the Lord in each chapter of the Psalms, and then the second question is, what can I learn about myself and what I need to do about it? So keep those two questions in mind because they're going to be very important to Psalm 77. In one of the Bibles I was reading to study, the title was Confidence in a Time of Crisis, and I thought that was a great title and sounded very helpful because we all go through times of crisis, extreme times Maybe not so extreme times, but often we find ourselves in the middle of trouble. And the Lord has a lot to say about how you and I can navigate those times. And Psalm 77 is a very intimate picture of someone who loves the Lord experiencing a time of great anguish and stress and how they begin to deal with that kind of a situation. So there are 20 verses in Psalm 77, and I have divided up the chapter into three parts. And if you make notes, you can can make notes of these. But the first section I have is verses 1 through 10a, the, the beginning line of 10. And that part I'm calling the author's lament. And then verses 10b, so the second part of chapter, or of verse 10, all the way through Verse 15 is called the author's hope because there's a, you're going to see this, a dramatic change between what comes in the first section and what proceeds in the next section. And then finally, verses 16 through 20, I have those grouped together as the author's assurance. So I just wanted to give you a little bit of an outline of what we're going to be talking about this morning. But there is a deep lament, anguish, and a crisis that the author is feeling and going through. Then the author remembers the hope of God, and then the author reminds us of the assurance we can have in the saving arm of the Lord. So let's look at this a little bit together. Verse 1 says this, I cried out to God with my voice, to God with my voice, and he gave ear to me. I don't know, but I imagine that after he got done writing The author got done writing this psalm. I feel like verse 1 was added later because there is a confidence in verse 1 that you don't see in the rest of this section. Because he goes on and he says this, In the day of my trouble I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. If you mark in your Bible or if you're taking notes, 
highlight or write down that word remembered because one of the main actions throughout this entire psalm is the action of remembering. And if you see meditating, you can write that down too. But we're going to see that in this first section when the pain and the suffering is on display, that this author is remembering God looking for comfort and you're going to notice that Interestingly enough, he doesn't find any. I remembered God, and I was troubled. I complained, and my spirit was overwhelmed. And the next few verses tell you exactly what he's feeling as he's considering what's going on in his life at the moment. He says this, you hold my eyelids open. That's God is keeping him awake. He can't sleep. I'm so troubled, I can't even speak. I can't verbalize what I'm going through. I can't sleep because I'm so troubled. I've considered the days of old. That's like remembering. I've considered the years of ancient times. I've thought back on the character of God, and I am troubled. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I can't sleep. I'm up all night. I'm trying to worship the Lord to find relief. I meditate even within my heart, and my spirit makes diligent search. The psalm doesn't give us exactly what's going on. But more than likely, the author is writing at the destruction of Jerusalem when the Babylonians are coming in to take Israel captive. So you can imagine the anguish and the pain and the crisis that this author would be experiencing when the capital city of the Lord and the people of God are laid waste and taken away by the powerful Babylonian empire. It's no wonder he can't sleep. It's no wonder he can't even talk about what's going on. And he's looking for hope in the only thing he knows, and that is God, but it's not helping him. Verses 7 through 9 lists six questions. Six questions after meditating and remembrance of God in light of the situation. These are the six questions he comes up with. Will the Lord cast off forever? Or will God be silent forever? Clearly, God is silent if his people are being taken captive. The next question, will he be favorable no more? Will the Lord ever be pleased again with Israel? He's not stepping in to stop this. He must be angry. Will he ever be pleased with them again? Has his mercy ceased forever? Notice that he keeps saying forever all the time he and, and this is what it feels like, isn't it? In the moment of an intense crisis or, or pain and suffering, it seems like that is going to be the reality for all time. We hardly ever are able to see past the suffering in our lives. And this author is experiencing the same thing. Has mercy ceased forever? Will I ever see God give mercy again? Has his promise failed forever more. The promise could be promises God has made throughout Israel's history, which he made several. The promise could also be referring back to the Abraham covenant. Promise to prosper Abraham, to give him more kids than the stars, to bless the entire world through it all. And he kept re-promising that essential promise, that covenant, over and over and over again to Israel. And this crisis is so terrible that even the promise of God 
to love his people and protect them seems like it may not come true. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has God forgotten to show me the grace that I need? And has, his, has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? So if God is considered the one who is giving mercy, if it flows down from him, has he put a cover over that so that no longer will his people experience tender mercy? It's important to note that the author is remembering, meditating, and considering the character of God in light of the crisis and the suffering and the anxiety and the stress and the pain he's feeling. It's important to know that and and to mark that down because in the next section, we're going to talk a lot about remembering as well, but you're going to notice a dramatic shift in tone. But after he gets done with his six questions, considering the character of God in light of this overwhelming crisis, in light of this overwhelming pain and stress and anxiety, he says this in verse 10, the beginning. He says, and I said, this is my anguish. He sums it all up by saying, this is what is burdening my heart, a deep feeling of abandonment by God based on what he sees right in front of him and what he's feeling in his immediate context. And then, in verse 10, in the second part, it says this. This one word that starts to change everything. It says, but. There's another famous but in in Ephesians, where the gospel is being presented and the terrible news of sin's curse upon our lives and our destiny to die is brought out. And then Paul says, but God, but God changes everything. And that could have been what he wrote here in the psalm, but God. That's what this means. The word but means a contrast. It means one thing was one way, and now something is going to be a different and usually the opposite way. Listen to this, but I will remember. Now he remembered before, remember in verse 3, I remember God And I was troubled. In verse 5, I considered the days of old. In verse 6, I called to remembrance. I meditated. And I diligently searched the character of God, but I found no hope. But look at this. I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. In verse 11, surely I will remember your wonders of old. If you're studying the Psalms, it's always a good idea if you mark up your Bible or if you take notes, however you do it, it's always important to underline or highlight any words or phrases that are repeated. We saw the word remember in verse 3, we saw it again in verse 6, and then here in verse 10 and 11, I will remember that phrase is spoken or written three times right after the other. Another important thing to consider as you read through the scriptures is when something is repeated three times, it's not by accident. It's purposefully there three times to draw your attention to how serious and how important the message is. So God is called holy, holy, holy in the Bible. 
if we said God is holy, that's all we would have to say, because we aren't. And so saying God is holy is a statement that is almost impossible for us to comprehend. But the Bible says specifically God is holy, holy, holy. The most holy that you could be is God. That's how important it is, the holiness of God is. And when you see that in Scripture, you're supposed to understand that. And when you look at the psalm here and you see the author write, I will remember, I will remember, I will remember. That should draw your attention to the importance of remembering the works of God. Now, in the first section, he remembered the works of God and he was troubled. But I pointed out, and, and this is why I said it was important, he remembered the works of God in the light of his circumstances. He looked at what was happening around him, the fall of the city, the taking of the people. And he said, I can't see any good that could come from this. I can't see any way out of this. And if God's not stepping in right now and changing things, he must have forgotten us or he must not care. But in this section, he says, I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. That means I will remember what God has done before in power to save. I will remember the works of the Lord. I'm going to stop focusing on what's going on right in front of me and expecting that God is defined by my circumstances, but I will look back at God's character of old and define him by his words and works. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I'll get out of focusing on what's going on right now and remember how God has acted in the past. Then it says this in verse 12, I will also meditate on all your work. There's three things in this section to remember to do, to practice to do, three skills that you and I need to practice in order to understand and have confidence in times of crisis. And remembering God for who God is, is one, and meditating is another. I will also meditate on all your work. When we hear the word meditate, we often think of an intellectual, mystical kind of thing. Maybe you're sitting around a campfire and humming to yourself. Or maybe you're just thinking a lot about something. And that is definitely a part of meditation. But if an Israelite read this, when they read the word meditate, they would think a few more things about that. The word for meditate in the Hebrew also means not just to consider, not just to ponder, but to speak and to sing and to mutter. Not just to internalize the things of God, but to express them outwardly, intimately, maybe with a friend, maybe with a close circle. But to meditate means you don't just keep it inside. It means you speak it out or you might even sing it out. And that's an important thing, an important skill to practice. So it says, I will remember, I will meditate. And then it says, I will talk of your deeds. Well, meditating is kind of like talking, but I think the emphasis here is not to just talk to myself about what God is doing or who he is, not just to talk to my closest friends about who he is, 
but to proclaim the glory of God to all, to be ready to speak of the truths and the hope and the mercy and the grace and the righteousness and the justice of God to all. You can't speak it out broadly if you don't believe it in your heart yourself. And so these things all work together to bring this author relief in the face of crippling anguish and anxiety and fear and pain and suffering. Do you see the dramatic shift from where I considered God and in light of my circumstances I see no hope, but then when I consider God for who God actually is and what he's done in the past, what his works have been, then I know that I can have hope. Then I know the promise hasn't failed. Then I know God hasn't forgotten to be gracious. Then I know the Lord won't cast me off forever. Then I know that God is still looking favorably upon his people. The author in the first section considered God's character in the light of his crisis. And he made some conclusions about God, the way he felt. And then when he takes a moment to step back and to think, he starts considering God's character in light of the promises and the works that God has already accomplished in his life and in the life of the people of God. So then he lists, before he listed six questions, now he lists five truth statements that he knows about God that gives him confidence to say, even though this thing is bearing down on me, this horrible event in my life is bearing down on me. I know God is in control and God cares. Look at what he says in verse 13. Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Another way of saying that is God is holy. Only God could be in the deepest part of the sanctuary in the Jewish temple. In the tabernacle, there was the holy of holies. And only God was allowed to be in there because that was a representation of a place without sin. So God is holy. And that's good for his people. Who is so great? Who is so great a God as our God? There is no rival or equal to the God the psalmist worships. Even though Babylon seems strong and there's no way Israel could ever overcome them, God himself has no rival. And that means that no nation is too strong to defeat the Lord. Verse 14, you are the God who does wonders. You are the God who works miracles. The people of Israel, if they consider for a moment their history, they have to understand that God works miracles constantly in their lives. You have, you, excuse me, you have declared your strength among the peoples. That means God is not silent. God hasn't been quiet. He hasn't acted in a corner where no one could know about it, except maybe the faithful. He has over and over and over put his power on display and his love for his people on display. So, I mean, in a sense, in a way, the Babylonians were taking their fate into their own hands by saying, we're going to go against God's people. God hasn't been quiet, and he won't be quiet. And then in verse 15, you have with your arm redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. And now we're going to get a little bit of a transition and a shift into the last section. And the last section is the author's assurance, how he knows that his hope in God is 100% 
foolproof, that there's no other option for him but to hope in the character of God based on his past works. And we start to transition into the story of the crossing of the Red Sea and the exodus out of Egypt. And the clue there is the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Well, why does he specifically talk about them? Well, they were intimately tied to Egypt, and it was after Jacob and Joseph were dead that the children of Israel were then uh, enslaved for 400 years under the Egyptians. And there was no hope for them of ever getting out, of ever having the promise finally fulfill, fulfilled that had been promised to Abraham. There was no hope until they cried out to God and God sent his servant Moses, which if you look at the very end of the psalm in verse 20, you'll see Moses and Aaron are brought up. So here's what's interesting about this. We talk about this story a lot. It's very familiar. The, 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 uh, the exodus, the rescue of the people of God out of Egypt, crossing the Red Sea and moving on to the promised land. But for an ancient Israelite, for the readers of this psalm, this is the, the exodus, is the greatest, most powerful act of redemption God had ever accomplished for the people of Israel. This was a watershed moment, maybe even the watershed moment of God's work, God's care, God's mercy, God's graciousness, and God's power for his people. Look at, how he, look at how he describes what happens. It's so quick, but it's so powerful. The waters, this is verse 16, the waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you, and they were afraid. The depths also trembled. Why is he talking about water? Well, they crossed the Red Sea, so maybe that's why he's talking about water. Well, yes, that's true, but in ancient Israelite thinking, water was a two-sided coin. It was important for life, of course, and for agriculture and all that stuff. But water was also, it, it, it was very scary. It posed a massive problem. Water was uncontrollable. Oceans and, and seas were dangerous. If a storm comes up, you're at the mercy of nature. They can't control the water. And so he says that God's power is greater than the waters. When the waters saw the presence of God coming, the waters were afraid. Waters fear nothing. Water just does what it does. And nothing that humans can do can affect that. But God has control. The depths, so the ocean, the sea, the chaotic sea that poses a problem and can lead oftentimes to death, the depths trembled before God's power. If you're in the middle of your city being destroyed and a massively powerful empire coming in and taking you away, and you remember that, oh yeah, God said we were going to be here for 70 years, if you're looking at that, you might sit there and say, God, are you strong enough to save us? But then if you step back and you remember how God took an ocean and parted it with his hands, or how Jesus stood in the boat and got up after sleeping through the storm and said to the storm, stop. If you remember the, that power that God has, perhaps you also can find relief and hope in the Lord. Then he goes on in verse 17 and 18, and he talks about a storm. Another thing 
that, the, that humans could never control and are at the mercy of. The clouds poured out water, the sky sent out a sound, your arrows also flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind, the lightning lit up the whole world, the earth trembled and shook. Not only is God in control of the sea and is the, does the sea fear him, but God speaks like a storm. I don't know if you've been in, in a storm that like the lightning and the thunder hits very close to you. So just last month we had a storm here and I was here and I was getting ready to walk out to the car and it was in the evening and, and lightning hit very close, very close by and, uh, and all the power went out and everything. But then the thunder came right after that and I have never heard thunder that close before. I, start, I was starting to walk and I stopped and I couldn't move. And I was terrified. Like, I'd never have experienced that kind of terror in my life to feel afraid. And I was down there and just, I was getting ready just to go out from under the awning. And I just went back to the door and unlocked it and went back inside because that was terrible. I mean, so that's one strike of lightning. That's one sound of thunder. Imagine God's voice who speaks in the thunder, in the whirlwind. I can't imagine what the Egyptians who were chasing down the people of God as the ocean was being parted, I can't imagine what they were thinking and how they even had the will to keep going. Or even how the people of God themselves had the will to keep going because the terrible, awesome power of God was on display. And it wasn't on display against his own people. It was on display for his people to save them. Look at this. This is so fascinating. Verse 19. Your way was in the sea. Your path in the great waters. And your footsteps were not known. In other words, the people of God that day had no idea how God was going to save them. And the last thing they expected was to enter in on dry land through the Red Sea. That was the last thing they expected. But how often does God bring crises? Does God bring suffering and pain into our lives? And in it, he's saying, I have the way through this. Will you trust me? Will you obey me? He's not the author of evil. He's not the author of sin. But God brings these things into our lives. And he doesn't just drop us in the middle of it or he doesn't just let it overwhelm us and say, okay, now figure it out what you're going to do. Okay, Israelites and Moses, figure out how you're going to cross this sea with no boats and chariots bearing down on you from behind. He makes the way. The way was in the sea, the, least, the last expected place for these people, for the people of God was through the sea. And that's the path God chose and had the power to accomplish. So, you can see why there's a dramatic change from verses 9 and 10 to 11 and following. Because after the psalmist considers God in light of God's character, not in light of his own events, but considers God in the way that God acts and the way God works, Historically, it's like saying that God who parted the Red Sea is the same God I serve in the middle of the destruction of Jerusalem. And if he can do that, what can he do 
today. So those two questions, what is God saying that I need to trust about himself? And what do I need to obey? Here's a couple of things. Here's what you can trust from Psalm 77. If you believe in God, if you are his servant, you can be assured that God hears his people. He is listening. And not just a passive, oh yeah, I heard what you said. But again, when it comes to scripture, the word listening always means an action as well. Listening and acting. God works in our suffering for our good. He does. He makes a way through the sea. Are we able to hear him? Are we able to follow him? Will we trust him? Our God is holy and he is powerful and he is concerned about his people. And that goes along with hearing them. He doesn't just hear them, but he takes interest in what they're doing and he walks alongside his people. And a final thing to take away is that God is in control of all creation and nothing that you suffer is outside of creation. No crisis you experience is outside of creation. So that means that God is in control of every circumstance and has the power to affect your salvation. So what will I obey? How will I trust God? How will I move forward? Remember, there's just the three things, really. And these things take a lifetime to perfect. And I want to point something out real quick. Um, I should have done it earlier, but that dramatic change from verses 10 to 11. Please don't think that the second you say, okay, God, I know what you did before and I believe it, that that just fixes everything. That's not what's going on here. We actually don't get any indication whether or not the psalmist felt better or was able to move on or just didn't have as many concerns as he did before. And I'm willing to bet that he still had plenty of concern for a long time after that. But what we learn here, this isn't like the medicine you take to feel better, and then once you feel better, you stop taking it until the next time you need it. This is the type of medicine that you have to practice all the time. You have to take regularly for the rest of your life so that when the next crisis comes, you're even more prepared for how to handle it than you were before. But to just say, okay, I'll remember, I'll meditate, and I'll talk just to get myself through this to feel better, and then I'll put that on the shelf until I need it again. That's not what's going on here. That's not what any scripture wants you to do, and that's not what God wants you to do when considering his things. Meditating is to meditate day and night is to consider these things inwardly and outwardly, day and night. Remembering is to remember constantly. Constantly remind yourself what God has done. And let me say this. The Exodus isn't, for most of us in here, I will assume the Exodus is not our watershed moment. But I can tell you what is, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection three days later. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And your job is to remember that constantly, meditate on that day and night. If you have nothing else to look back to in your life where God has, has, um, has come through for you, has shown his power, you have the gospel of Jesus Christ where he changed you from a sinner to a beloved child. And so our lives should constantly be 
lived out through the lens and the filter of remembering, meditating, and talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So do those things. Remember what he's done for you. Ponder the character of God regularly, not just in your own specific context, but in the context of the history of this world. How has God acted? So what does that mean for my future? And speak God's promises regularly to yourself, to your family, to your friends, to your church, to your culture, to everyone around you. Do those things. And you can have confidence in a time of crisis the same as the psalmist did. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for what people have written in the past as they've considered you, as they've pondered you, as they have learned to live for you, Father. And I thank you that they wrote it down so we could do the same thing today. I pray, Father, that if there's anyone here today who is not one of your children, that, Father, they would come. The only hope for the suffering and the pain and the evils of this life, the only hope is Jesus. The only way to navigate well and with a purpose and lasting meaning is to know Christ and to honor him. So if there's people here today who do not know him, Father, I pray that you would draw them to you this morning, that they would put their trust in Christ's work on the cross, acknowledging their sin, knowing they only can be redeemed by the blood he shed. And Father, I pray that you would show us how to continually, every day, remember, meditate, and speak the promises of God so that we would become so well-versed and practiced in it that when crises come, we are more than well-prepared to handle them. We thank you and we love you. And thank you for your grace and mercy. And we ask all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.